welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. I am Dan Martin, special effects artist and co-host, and I'm joined here by my other co-host, the other one, the other person who's in on this with me. Sam Ashurst, um, and I'm a screenwriter, a director, and I write about film for a bunch of different places. And I am very excited to be talking about Audition today, one of the greatest films ever made. But before we do that, Dan, why don't you talk a bit about the structure of this show? Right, welcome to episode seven. Um, every fortnight, we uh, will choose a film that Arrow have released, either in the UK or America, or both. Maybe an old title or something upcoming. We will watch it together. We'll talk about it to in some depth. Then we'll make some uh, recommendations based on that film. Uh, and we'll also make some recommendations based on the films we've been watching over the past couple of weeks. Because we watch a lot of weird films and we'd like to recommend some to you. But before we do that, Dan, why don't you tell them about the plot of Audition? Um, okay, so Audition is uh, concerns a, a TV executive, um, a businessman who works in entertainment, who is a widower. His son, who he has uh, quite a close relationship with, is mocking him for getting old, losing his looks, and says, "You should, uh, you should get another, uh, you should get another wife." Um, but it's been ages and he doesn't know how to date. And what's he going to do? I mean, you know, it's not like Tinder's happened yet, but the world's moved on. And while lamenting this to a friend in a bar, his also media person friend recommends that they have a fake audition for a TV show. Uh, and then he can pick his wife uh, from, the, uh, from the, the people that come to the audition, from the potential actresses, which leads to them uh, asking them to write little essays about themselves uh, and they ask all sorts of questions that are not appropriate to be asked in a TV audition. Yeah, it's um, it, it's sort of it sounds quite sinister uh, when when we put it like that, mainly because it is. But it's the tone of, of that half of the film is very much kind of quirky rom com, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I mean, there are, it's interspersed with um, with sort of flags that something is untoward, and they get closer and redder as they closer together and, and redder in colour as they as the film progresses. Yeah. It's it's interesting because I I hadn't seen it for a few years when I rewatched it. And it's I do, I'm impressed with how little I realised it was flagging it in the early watches, like before. Hmm. Watching it again now, not just because it's, you know, recently, but also as someone who is more involved in film in their daily life. Hmm. It's interesting to see what I, if I were working on a film, I might have thought it was going a bit too far with the telegraphing. Mm-hmm. But actually, it's a really beautiful balance. It's really subtle. Yeah, um, absolutely. And stuff that on the second or you know third or fifth or whatever watch, mm. you go, how how did I not see that coming? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's really nicely put together. Definitely, and uh, we often describe the opening scene of the films we're discussing on this podcast. Uh, basically, it, it begins with uh, how many movies might end um, with uh, the husband, uh, with his wife. She's dying. Uh, she's in her final moments. And their son is walking down the corridor with a science project to show his mum. And it's uh, a model of a volcano that's going off, uh, which is kind of a neat symbol for the film in a way, because 
The volcano is very calm, quite beautiful, until it goes off in a burst of all-encompassing violence, um, which is still beautiful. Um, but from a distance. But from a distance, exactly. <laughs> if you don't need to fly. So yeah, it's it's kind of the pacing of this film is kind of incredible because you know we've got that opening scene, very tragic, and then you know cut to the title and and um, it's the scene where they're fishing, isn't it? That comes next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're fishing, which then leads to them having dinner alone together in this house in the in the the house where they live together, and. Um, and there's a neat little moment when uh, the son tells the father a fun fact about the, uh, the the type of fish that they're eating and the fact that they uh, they determine their gender later in life. So some become male, some become female. And the father says, uh, did we get a female one or a male one? And the son says, oh, well, it was female. You, we saw ovaries in the fish when we were filleting it. And the father goes, ah, I don't, I don't know about ovaries. <laughs> <laughs> Setting up that he's this kind of like, doesn't really concern himself with the, the goings on of women. <laughs> totally. And I, I, I really do feel like there's a lot of symbolism quite early on in the film. Like there's some shots of uh, the sea as it's starting to get a little rougher. Um, and you know, that idea of a calm, beautiful sea before it becomes something quite dangerous. Yeah. Uh, I think it would feel like there's quite a lot in there, isn't there? Yeah, it's, it's really nice. Um, like, Mike, I, I, I've not actually read the novel that it's based on, mm-hmm. so I don't know how much of that is Mike bringing it and how much of it actually comes from the source text. I can, I can talk a little bit about that. I'd be interested to hear you talk a little bit about that. It's uh, it's very much a adaptation. It's Mike's own sort of visual take on it. They they stick close to the the spine of the story, but um, make some very key changes. And in fact, Mika, I think he only met with the author once. Um, what's his name? Um, Ryu Murakami. And I think Murakami tried to sort of give some advice and I think Mike <laughs> pretended to listen and then only showed it to him when it was completely, completely finished. Locked. It, yeah, locked <laughs> in a screening room on his own. <laughs> they weren't even that. The Get out of here, and, Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so he watched it on his own and apparently came straight out of the movie, phoned Mike and was like, this is awesome, I love it, I love the changes. And I'll, I'll sort of go on to talk about the changes in a second, but just to sort of take it back a little bit further, one of the things that I find interesting about Audition is that it was made during the J-horror kind of craze. Yeah. And Mike had no interest in doing a horror film. He, he was like, you know, there's no point in doing another one. Um, then this project, the, the kind of book came to him and, and his writer and they kind of discussed it and realised that because they're not horror filmmakers, um, they could do something different that, that's unlike anything else that's, that's around interesting, especially considering, and this is going to sound like I'm throwing shade on Mike a little bit and I'm not, I love him, um, but his other later J-horror stuff is is significantly less exciting than this. Mm. But then I'd hardly... Like, I don't really think this fits into the J-horror mould. It's Japanese, and it's a horror film, and it came out about the same time as all of those other horror films. But they're so stylistically consistent. But that that's kind of my point, yeah. I think. And um, And actually, he didn't even... You know, after this discussion and they made the film, he didn't, in the end, consider Audition to be a horror film. Yeah. Um, he says, you know, there's nothing supernatural about it. And he sees the characters as being um, normal people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Displaying their dark sides in bizarre ways, which is, you know, true. Um, and, and just to tie it to the J-horror thing, one of the sort of interesting deviations is that 
uh, Mike says that in his film, in Audition, all the characters want to be happy, um, as opposed to sort of more traditional Japanese horror films, which tend to be based on revenge or resentment or grudges, sorrow, jealousy, like negative feelings. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he didn't feel like it was well, a horror film, more of a psychological suspense. Well, it's film. A, a film about escaping loneliness, isn't it? Yeah. Like the whole. The That's whole, where the sadness yeah, is. Yeah. So, the, but it's but they're not aggressive because they're taking out. A resentment for that they're trying to find a connection that yeah. will cure it exactly um and one in particular is doing it in a, a somewhat broken manner <laughs> really <laughs> somewhat but yeah it's not a vengeful spirit it's not a curse mm-hmm. so yeah it definitely stands it aside from the other j-horror stuff unlike one miss call which is fine it's fun but that's a very by the numbers J horror. Totally, and yeah, I just I just like the idea that you know he didn't want to do a horror film and didn't really feel like it was a horror film, and in fact, um, he laughs about the fact that he was asked to direct a Masters of Horror episode off the back of audition because he doesn't really feel like it's you know. But yeah, it yeah. made it made a huge impact on a lot of American directors. Well, yeah, I mean, he cameoed in Hostel. Yeah, and Hostel would not exist if it were not for audition. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think Hostel... Hostel is not a is not as good a film as Audition. No. (laughs) That's a a safe thing to say. But then not many films are as good as Audition. exactly. But, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Mr. Heller, why have you never written another good book as good as Catch-22? (laughs) Who has? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But the thing is, I, I think you're right in that uh, Hostel wouldn't exist without um, Audition because Audition was a big inspiration to Roth. But I don't think... Like, to even connect them like that, again, it's it's not that kind of horror film. That's just about mean-spirited people doing horrible things. So, I mean, the, the only connection is basically you think it's one film, which is like this, you know, mm. American Pie-style lads go to a foreign country yeah, yeah, with sort good... of sinister elements, and then it becomes something really nasty and, and you know, tortury and all the rest of it. So that that's kind of where they're connected. Yeah, but... I see that. But yeah, just I just want to go back to what I said before about you know the adaptation. I don't I don't want to you know make it seem like Mike didn't respect the book because um, he actually you know he thought it was a great story and and for me a lot of Mike's films have an improvised feel, whereas with this he said that he wanted to specifically stick closely to the script. Um, it was kind of the only way it could work, and in fact one of the things another kind of lovely fact about this is that um Mike believed that it was based on a true story um really yeah <laughs> he said that basically um like to a certain extent you know not on a obviously not a hundred percent true or uh the the author would be hobbling around but um yeah, he believed that Murakami, who himself was doing a lot of auditions at that time, um, at the time he wrote the book, um, and he, he actually he directed Tokyo Decadence. I don't know if you know that, the author of Audition. Oh, no, I didn't know. Yeah, so Mike believes that he met someone who, who kind of made an impact on him and that the message of the film could be, I love you, to that person, Mike believes. Oh. Um, <laughs> which 
You get the feeling that Mika just says, <laughs> says weird things for the sake of it to see how people will react to what he's saying. Uh, occasionally, yes. I mean, he did <laughs> at, at the start of the audio commentary, the um, the Arrow audio commentary with uh, Mika and the writer, which is, you know, this disc has some lovely extras and the commentary is definitely one of them. Um, he kind of opens it by by telling the interviewer that he may... I, I'm paraphrasing, but he may not remember much about the making of this film because he's drunk quite a lot since then. <laughs> so, um, you know, maybe he's trolling us by saying this is based on a true story, but, um, you know, let's print the legend, shall we? Yeah, absolutely. And it, so it was a massive turning point for Mike, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. It was around that time that his, um, his films started getting, were getting programmed in international festivals. It was his 35th film in nine years, I think. Wow. I think those numbers work. Wow. It was 99, yeah? Yeah. 99, yeah. So his start, first film was in 1990. Done a lot of straight-to-video stuff, which doesn't have the same stigma in Japan than it does in the West. No way, uh, yeah. Like, Juon was a straight-to-video movie yeah. in Japan. Like, it's a, it's it's a respectable... Yeah, it's a fine genre. And, um, yeah, his 35th movie in nine years, and it... Yeah, it, it was the first of his films to be released cinematically outside of Japan. So it was it was definitely a huge move for him. And yeah, and Mike was surprised by that, um, because he says that, you know, he didn't make it for the festival circuit, he didn't make it to have overseas success. He just quite modestly says he just wanted to make a good film that came in under budget. So yeah. he must have been, you know, fairly surprised that it, it did connect so massively with international audiences. Um, yeah. And nothing was the same for him after that. Yeah, it's interesting. It's not because, like, a lot of his earlier stuff, not all of his earlier stuff, but a lot of his earlier stuff was quite, like, frivolous. And yeah. Like, you look at, like, Full Metal Gokudo yeah. and um, uh, Fudo the Next Generation. Yeah, totally. Like, these are, these are very, like, rambunctious movies. Yeah. And this is much more serious. And he had done more serious stuff. And it was, the, it was films like Bird People of China... Rainy Dog, Ley Lines, those were the films that were meaning that non-Japanese festivals were starting to pick him up. But then when Audition came, it, yeah, it just changed everything. It's interesting, it's, it's sort of like, it's almost like Blowout, um, which we discussed last week, there's kind of, kind of parallels there in that, you know, this was a much more serious proposition than his previous stuff, but it still had those exploitation and crazy elements, but yeah. it, just in a kind of more... I don't want to say coherent, but less random way, I guess. More ordered. More ordered, exactly. And uh, I would like to ask you, Dan, Martin, um, about your feelings in terms of what this film is saying about men and women. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it, the, it certainly divided people yeah. <laughs> about that. It's interesting. I, I think it's entirely possible that the film isn't necessarily... Making a taking a stance as much as it is painting a portrait of how people work of the world, like it, it's certainly not endorsing the way these guys are behaving, but it is showing this kind of warts and all workings of quite a like a male dominated industry, and the fact that these guys feel that they can just like literally organize a lineup of women so that one of them can pick one, like that's it's not presented as anything other than slightly reprehensible but it doesn't that's not why he is that that's not why the film does what it does although spoilers 
Spoilers. Spoilers. She does say, you lied to us. You know, she she does kind of frame what she's doing as though it's vengeance. Mm. But it ne- that never really feels like it's actually what she's doing. No. And, and actually, she lied to him. Totally. Significantly more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. It, I, I don't think it's really one or the other. I think it's it's just a window. Yeah, and it's interesting. I completely agree. And it's interesting what you say about the reaction when it was screened at Rotterdam in 2000. It had a record number of walkouts. Yeah. Um, I remember hearing a, a woman approach Mikay after one of the screenings and basically told him he was evil. So, yeah, it did have quite an intense reaction. But what's interesting to me is that Mikay actually kind of held back a bit, um, believe it or not. The book can be read as being about fear of female sexuality um, because there's quite an explicit sex scene in the book where the turn starts to happen and Mike very much pulls back from that in the film version and for me the film is more about fear of commitment to a certain extent rather than that fear of female sexuality well I think it's it's about it is about fear of commitment it's about what is the greater fear the fear of the opposite sex or the fear of dying alone completely yeah exactly and and you choose what you're going to what you're going to live with yeah and in this the the guy his reasons are a shallower but he decides that he will take himself a new young bride rather than be alone mm. so yeah like well like with um like with Kaido, like with Pulse that we talked about. Yeah, it, totally. Like this, this feeling of, totally. of, of isolation within society is a very um, pervasive aspect of Japanese cinema and, and literature. And I think that's, yeah, it's definitely what's at the crux of this one. Absolutely. And if you haven't listened to our Pulse episode yet, do go back and give that a listen because it's, it's a good one. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's all right. <laughs> and yeah, so, you know, one more kind of key change. Um, there's no... Kiri, Kiri, Kiri moment in the book. Um, when, you, when you say there's no moment, do you mean she doesn't say that? She, she doesn't say that. And, and, and also the, the the torture stuff is different. Mike said that he had to make up the, the drug that, that she injects him okay. with because nothing like that exists. But and, and it's yeah, the it's only a, way to make the scene work. But also it's a massively common trope in horror. Yeah. It's, although not, the same drug it is exactly the same as Concept. the yeah, yeah. as the weapon used by the killer in black belly of the tarantula totally and in that film they say that he gets it from a spider he's harvesting its venom so that he can physically paralyze his female victims but they'll still feel the evisceration that is uh, performed upon them it's a yeah it's a pretty common mm. lie about medicine mm. <laughs> it's like an anti-anesthetic but i just I, I like the way that Mike felt the need to to comment on that as though you know he felt he'd kind of cheated a little bit <laughs> um but one scene where <laughs> they definitely didn't cheat kind of super gross so uh, brace yourselves there's a scene involving a, a, a dog bowl full of vomit where uh the prisoner is forced to, to lap at it. And that is the actual vomit of the actress because uh, uh, Ihi Sheena, and uh, she's a method actress, so she insisted that it be her own vomit, either that or she just didn't like the dude. Playing. So when the man in the bag... <laughs> in the eats, Hessian sack... Eats yes. the vomit. Yes. Is that still... Is there an edit there? Have they swapped it out for milk? 
which is what it looks like. I don't think they have. Wow, that's Renosugi, who plays the Prime Minister in Shin Godzilla. So I've heard. <laughs> yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, he's a he's quite a he's a he's in a lot of films. Completely unrecognisable in the bag. <laughs> Good old Shin Godzilla. Um, I was actually tempted to ask you, Dan, if we could uh, record if you would record this podcast solo. And then have me suddenly turn up towards the end, but I figured that wasn't practical. Um, also, <laughs> also, I didn't want to go in a bag. Um, so anyway, good audition. What a absolute masterpiece! If you haven't seen it, sorry we spoiled it a bit, but we have been told quite a few times now on Twitter that we need to stop worrying about the spoilers, and we haven't gone too deep into them, have we? Yeah, but, we've 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 alluded heavily. Yeah, like the thing is, I do feel like it's one of those ones where the less you know about it, the better. Totally. So, uh, shall we do recommendations based on this masterpiece of a film? Absolutely. Although, before we do, I'd like to mention that uh, when I went to go and see it at the Prince Charles uh, yes. the other day, um, so Arrow have the British cinematic rights to this as well as the Blu-ray rights, uh, which means that occasionally they show it as part of their video club thing they do at the Prince Charles Cinema in London. On the website, it was listed as being a digital projection, uh, which, you know, I'm fine with, whatever. But when we got in there, uh, it was actually a 35mm festival print. So that was a treat. Yeah, so if you if you do go and see it at the uh, at the Prince Charles next time Arrow show it, um, it the chances are it'll be a 35 print, which is really nice. And uh, you went with Mike Hewitt, who works at Arrow. Yes. And it was a first time watch for uh, for Mike. What so, a treat! There was so what? How did he react to it? He, he loved it. He turned to me at the end credits and went, "I'm never dating again." <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was really nice. I got up I got up on stage to introduce it uh, before it played, and I asked the cinema how many people had had never seen it before about 75% of the audience it was their first watch oh what a way to watch it that's great which is that's awesome. both like it was very nice for me to be in a room full of people who hadn't seen it before like there were people hiding their faces which was really nice <laughs> <laughs> but also I think it speaks to people's like like faith in Arrow as well that like here's a 1991 Japanese 1999 but yes sorry thank you 1999 here's a 1999 Japanese horror film that they've never seen. Mm. They'll just pop along on a Tuesday evening to go and watch it. And what an absolute treat they yeah, got. Yeah, absolutely. And, and now we are going to move on to recommendations. Um, I'll start with one that, like, I can't imagine anyone listening to this hasn't actually seen, but then I can't imagine anyone hasn't seen Audition. So um, if there is one person out there, I'm talking to you specifically, dear listener, um, watch From Dusk Till Dawn, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is... Uh, one of my, another one of my all time favorites. I love it so much. Uh, I worked at a cinema when it was out and used to basically go in and watch it once or twice a day. And it has a similar kind of, uh, shift where you think it's one thing and then it turns into something else that's completely different. You all know this. You've all seen it. But if there's one person out there who hasn't, uh, then I urge you to see it because you'll have a really fun couple of hours. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great film. It is a great film. It was released on the centenary of cinema, and all the films in my local cinema were a pound. Do you know what? It's, <laughs> I, and, you know, like I said, I, I worked at the cinema at that time, so I, I went through that ordeal of everyone being able to buy tickets for a pound. It was very busy that day. And um, they also made us dress up in fancy dress. And I went as Alex from Clockwork Orange, and no one got it. 
And you wearing a nappy? Uh, I wasn't wearing a nappy. I was wearing all white. I had the bowler hat. I had the stick, and I had the um, the uh, eye makeup. I eye, eye makeup on one side, and basically, someone, some lad came up to me and said, "Oi, mate, are you a tranny?" Um, so so you hit him with a giant concrete phallus. No, just just <laughs> the stick I had, and that was that was my last Kick day. Him in a canal. That was my last day at that job. Anyway, Dan, <laughs> recommendation. <laughs> Yeah, my first uh, recommendation is one of Mike's earlier works that's still more serious. Um, uh, from 98, it's Blues Harp, which is a pretty straightforward uh, yak as a gangster tale about dissatisfaction and climbing through the ranks. Uh, it's got some great performances in it. Uh, it's got some slightly hammy soundtracking to it, which I think is actually really fun and adds to it. But yeah, it's worth tracking down, and it's one of the ones that less people have seen from his early career. I think it's really worth that's checking a, out. I think I've got a German DVD of it, but I, I'm sure it's available elsewhere now. That's that's a great recommendation. That's fantastic. Uh, my second recommendation is a film called Ego Maniac from 2016 um, by a director named Kate Shenton. Now, this played at Fright Fest um, a couple of years ago. Uh, well, last year, not a couple of years ago. Last year, Sam. Um, and it is a super, super, super low budget, uh, film. So I do want to prepare you for that. But Kate works miracles on a tiny budget. Um, and you can watch it. It's on Amazon Prime, um, for like a few quid or whatever. And, um, it reminds me of Audition in that it's similarly, you feel like it's going one way. Um, if you've, if anyone out there has worked in the film industry and has tried to get funding for a movie, it's almost like a documentary, but you know, heightened. It's very funny, kind of peep show esque humor to start with. And then, like Audition, it takes a turn. Um, and yeah, Kate wrote and directed it. It's, it features a magnificent lead performance from Nick Lamont as Catherine Sweeney, our lead, um, who's a, a young writer director who's trying to get a zombie romantic comedy film made and she encounters lots of difficulties and it goes on from there so yes egomaniac you can watch it on amazon prime i recommend it nice uh my second recommendation based on the film based on audition is woman of the dunes uh black and white 1964 movie from hiroshi teshigahara who also did pitfall back in 62 which is out on criterion that's a fantastic movie woman of the dunes is about a man who's tricked into getting in a hole where he is sort of held captive by the woman who lives in that hole um but then also by the village who put the woman in the hole uh, and her job is shoveling sand for the village it's a sort of dreamy abduction thriller um, I think it was technically an erotic film when it was released. It's a bit sexy, but it's a yeah, it's an absolutely gorgeous black and white art abduction thriller. Wonderful, yeah, well worth watching. Wow, great recommendation. So we are going to now move on to recommendations based on what we've watched over the past couple of weeks. Uh, I'm going to open with a Mexican horror film called The Untamed which uh, Arrow is going to be releasing. The film is... It super reminded me of uh, one of my top five films of all time, uh, Possession from 1981. Um, it's very much an exploration of uh, sexuality and 
a very similar way um, to, to possession, which I don't want to go into just in case I manage to spoil everything. But with uh, the Untamed, it's certainly in the marketing and in the trailer and all the rest of it. But um, something brings out um, a kind of forceful sexuality in uh, the, the people in, in the local area who visit a cabin and uh, spend time with a creature and it sort of uh, has some quite significant effects on them. <laughs> um, it's just beautifully shot, so beautifully shot and wonderful performances. And honestly, I really don't know what's going on in Mexico at the moment, but if you wanted to double bill The Untamed and We Are The Flesh, then... Uh, <laughs> also on Arrow? Also on Arrow. You are in for a uh, super good time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I loved it, The Untamed. Dan? Uh, fun side note on Possession. Yes. Uh, if you want a jolly good laugh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, there is a transcript of the court case in which Possession was being sued for obscenity in the UK mm. and it was thrown out of court. Uh, and the the reason is as much of a spoiler as the uh, as the thing you didn't quite go into detail in <laughs> yeah. about audition. But um, there's a there's a good book about the video nasties called The Seduction of the Gullible nice. uh, by yes. John Martin. I think is it John Martin. I think so. Yeah. Um, and if you get one of the later editions, he would sort of update this. Um, what's been going on with the nasties and what's been released and what hasn't in the back. Uh, I mean, you know, they're pretty much all available now uh, in some one way or another. But yeah, there is a, the, the transcript of that court case is in the back of, of one of the later editions of that. And it's hilarious. Amazing. And uh, Dan, your first recommendation. Uh, my first recommendation is um, Suspicious Death of a Minor, directed by Sergio Martino from 75. I only saw this for the first time recently. Uh, again, it's another one that Arrow have got out. I think it's just come out. It's a really lovely print. It's a really great film. Uh, I'm, I've always been a bit hit and miss with Martino. Mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of Your Vice is a Lot Room. Mm -hmm. I like Torso. Torso is mm -hmm. pretty oh, good. Yeah, Torso is so uh, One cool. on top of the other is very good. But yeah, no, so Martino in 75, Martino was making Suspicious Death of a Minor under the title Violent Milan. And it was more of a sort of cop movie, which were, they were becoming more popular as the Giallo was sort of like, it was becoming a little over the market was becoming oversaturated and but it does have sort of giallo-esque elements to it but it's more a very very grim thriller about someone investigating a child trafficking prostitution situation and then it's also a slapstick comedy which sounds like it's a terrible idea um italy has a very particular type of comedy and particularly at this era they were making some pretty peculiar, like, lowbrow comedy things. And it just kind of creeps into this movie. There's, like, wacky car chases and, like, funny music. And then it's suddenly, like, back to women having their faces eviscerated so that the police can't identify them and children being force-fed drugs. It's, um, yeah, it's a, really, it's a really good, dark thriller with some weird stylistic choices in it. I really, really enjoyed it. It sounds very interesting. Um, and I, I am going to be a, an epic shell because we've we've done a whole load of Arrow recommendations. Yeah. This, they haven't asked us to do this. This is just of our own volition. You have um, to remember we have access to their archives. So <laughs> I think they know what they're doing. When we, when we talk about the things we've watched, sometimes it's just Arrow. That's all we've watched. 
And actually, this isn't an archive release I'm going to recommend. It's something that's coming out soon that's going to be at the London Film Festival. But I uh, finally managed to catch The Endless, which is from Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, um, directorial uh, duo, who also made Resolution and Spring. Now, you're probably more likely to have seen Spring than Resolution, but while I like Spring, Resolution is such an underrated masterpiece. I love it so much. It's basically about uh, a, a man who, who takes his um, drug-addicted friend to a cabin in order to try and... Um, it, it's kind of a similar setup to Evil Dead, oh, the Evil one. Dead remake. I have seen that. I didn't think I'd seen it. Um, well... You, you've seen most of it. Yeah, I've seen most of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, Dan and I watched this very late at night, and unfortunately we lost Dan to the ravages of sleep. But, uh, but I'm an old man. And he, he, he sadly missed some of the most interesting stuff because it plays around... It's, basically, it's a very meta film, as is The Endless. Um, I was slightly disappointed in Spring purely because I expected them to kind of follow up on the magic of resolution they took a bit of a detour but the endless very much is the film i wanted them to make at that time just on a grander scale and and on a larger budget and you know it 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 very much reminded me of donnie darko um which we've talked about in the podcast in in the past it has that kind of vibe to it and similarly i think this is going to be a cult film that is going to survive for years and years and years i feel this is going to be one that people really talk about um so yeah if you get a chance to see the endless lff london film festival please do if not it might be at a festival near you if you're in the states if not it'll be out soon enough um, yeah. and please support these guys um because i love their voice i love their vision and i want to see them make more films more films more films please dan um, I was torn about my last one. I've, aside from just watching Arrow films, <laughs> uh, there was a Stephen King season on at the BFI. Are all our listeners English? Do we know? BFI's. They're not. They're the, definitely the not. The British Film Institute. It's a fantastic collection of art house screens. It's a three, four screen cinema, mm. three screen plus studio. And then it's sort of also attached to our massive IMAX in Waterloo in London. But they show great, they show new stuff, they show fantastic repertory stuff. And because It has come out recently, which is very fun, they did a Stephen King season and they played loads and loads of uh, Stephen King films, many of which uh, I'd never seen on the big screen. So I went along to see a handful of them. Uh, and I was torn as to whether or not I was going to recommend either Night Flyer or Sleepwalkers, which I saw on Friday Just Gone and Sunday Just Gone. But uh, sort of both, I guess. But like, I'm going to recommend Nightflyer because it doesn't get, it's not as well known. Mm. It was a made-for-TV movie. The director, it was his first feature. He's only done one film since, which is in 2016. It stars his semi-stars, like second in second billing. It's his wife who'd only ever done, has only got one other credit, which is a cameo. Like it sort of came out of nowhere. Um, it actually stars Miguel Ferrer, who kind of plays the same character he plays from Twin Peaks if he was a journalist, like a sort of real gutter tabloid journo, really nasty, angry man. Um, and it's about him getting obsessed with a slightly campy wannabe vampire, quote-unquote wannabe vampire, who's flying in at night in a little single prop plane to these like podunk, middle-of-nowhere landing strips and then killing everyone and draining them all of blood. And it's a... Um, but it's a really fun, weird uh, film. I think the directing is probably the weak link in it because there's some pretty bad choices with some of the actual shooting. 
but the script's pretty solid. Um, it's got a fantastic bit part character in it who you would swear is Judd Cranwell from Pet Cemetery in a different hat. It's got some interesting like visual gags in it. It's an early film with uh, KMB did the effects for it. Okay. It's an early KMB film, so it's got some pretty fun gore effects in it. Um, but it's also produced by Richard P. Rubenstein, who obviously did uh, Romero's like dead films and that kind of stuff, but also did loads of King movies. Obviously, he did he did Creepshow with Romero, which I think was his in with King, mm. and Tales from the Dark Side of the movie as well. But he did a lot of the TV movies. So he did Langoliers, The Stand, The Golden Years, which I loved, Pet Cemetery. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed Nightflyer. To nice. see it on the big screen. They managed to track down an HD digital print of it. I think it, I don't think there is a cine print of it. Nice. Um, and uh, we can we can do a joint recommend for Sleepwalkers if you want because that film is fucking cool and fucking odd and uh, and has, it's got another has, Twin Peaks alum in it. Yeah, and and also the greatest cameo sequence yeah. in cinema history. It's absolutely <laughs> amazing. Yeah, Stephen King plays a guy who's worried that people will say the murder was his fault because he didn't lock up a graveyard properly and goes from person to person trying to be absolved of his guilt. And every single one of them says, yeah, it's not my responsibility. Go and talk to the next person. But the people he talks to are Clive Barker, Toby Hooper, John Landis, and Joe Dante. What a list. What a lineup. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, on that note, let's... Oh, I want to say one more thing. The, yes. cop, the black cop in uh, Sleepwalkers, yes. the actor's name is Dan Martin. <gasps> and What the... And about two years ago, I started coming up ahead of him on MTV. <laughs> but it always used to be that I got the guy, the cop from... <laughs> The cop from Sleepwalkers, when I typed my name into IMDb to see if I'd been credited in stuff. <laughs> and look at you now. Look at me now. So yes, let's go into extra features. Extra features. Extra features. Extra features. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we've got a lovely email this week. Giving out the email address last week worked. So thank you very much, Matt, uh, who says... Hi, Sam and Dan. Great podcast. Keep up the good work. We'll try. Two suggestions for two films to be in the Arrow Video Library. Two of my favourites. Death Wish and Blind Fury. That's two of Matt's favourites. Not necessarily mine, but I do like Blind Fury. <laughs> um, and Dan loves Death Wish. So, I like Blind um, Fury too. Can I tell my Blind Fury story? Oh, God, yes, you can. I was on a school trip at the age of about 11 or 12, uh, and we were in a coach coming back from Europe. Uh, and the teachers had fallen asleep, and the driver had a stack of VHS players and a and a VHS uh, a stack of VHS tapes and a player that he could show on two or three screens that were do- like down the aisle of the bus. And we'd watch Little Shop of Horrors and uh, what's the like fun monster under the bed comedy, like buddy comedy from the eighties, uh, monster. little monsters, little monsters, little monsters with Fred and, Savage, uh, with Fred Savage, and the t- the, uh, the teachers had all fallen asleep, and so he put on Blind Fury. And we saw all but the last 10 minutes of Blind Fury, at which point a teacher woke up and went absolutely crazy. I mean... Uh, and I didn't see the end of Blind Fury for like 10 years, I think. Oh, damn. Um, now I've got the German Blu-ray, so <laughs> take that, whatever that teacher's name was, I don't remember. Take that school system. Matt goes on to say, I believe Warner have released Death Wish in the States, but never in the UK. Sad face. Regards, Matt from the West Midlands. Matt from the West Midlands, may we recommend that you watch the Zatoichi series, uh, which inspired Blind Fury. If you haven't, I'm being very presumptuous there, but um, please, if you haven't, email us and let us know what you think of it, because 
you know, there's only one thing better than than one film about a, a blind swordsman. <laughs> and that's, and that's like 20. Yeah, that's over 20. <laughs> um, so you're on a real uh, adventure there. Oh, they're start. a treat oh, well. they're, And they're all so good. So yeah, um, watch the Zatoichi films, please, Matt. And, and Wedlock. Extra, extra, <laughs> <laughs> which has Rutger Hoor in it. And, and, <laughs> so good right that that's that um thank you very much for writing in matt and if there's anyone else who would like to write in and get personal recommendations or, or, or whatever um then please write to us at the arrow video podcast at arrowfilms.co.uk and that comes directly to mine and dan's personal email addresses imagine that <laughs> um, <laughs> now Another bit of extra features business. I'm dominating this today. I'm sorry. Dan. No, that's fine. You go, man. Yeah. Uh, basically, I imagine you'll have seen Mother by now, if you're interested. It's been out for a bit. Um, there's obviously been quite a lot of controversy around it. Um, so I thought that I'd put a couple of interviews that I did um, recently for Digital Spy uh, onto this podcast. So uh, little clips from uh, first from my interview with Darren Aronofsky, who misunderstands my question in quite an amusing way. So, um, I, I love the film, by the way. Thank you. I, I love Possession, and it put me in that place. Great. Um, it can be read in a lot. love Possession or Repression? Or possession, possession, the movie. <laughs> oh, Possession, oh, by... Um, yeah, which was an influence, definitely. I, I, I saw it, I actually forgot about that. No, no one's asked, I've mostly been talking about Exterminating Angel. It's Zulowski, right? Yeah. That's, that's his name. Um, who just passed recently, right? Yeah, or a couple of years ago? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, great film, Possession. And that was actually, uh, that was an influence as well. I saw that. I don't know how I stumbled on it, but somehow I stumbled on it. Fuck, great film. But um, my question is, uh, you talked about the meaning of the film, how it's kind of out there, but for me, it's like a poem where different people can take different things from it. For me, it was about the sheer horror of being famous. <laughs> um, like the invasion of privacy and the sequence where Jennifer's being attacked yeah. could almost be what's happened to her well, it's over the past few years. Yeah. Um, was that on your It's mind? strange. It's funny. That question came up at the Venice Film Festival oh, okay. yesterday at the press conference. And at the end of the press conference, they always do this thing that everyone can come forward and ask for autographs at the table. I don't know if you've ever seen it. When they, when the conversation, that question was just answered by Jen and Michelle Pfeiffer. They both answered it, and then the, that was the last question. And there was a stampede. There was a guy in a wheelchair that they pushed to the side. It was terrifying. Like I, I jumped back, terrified. Like I didn't know. Like just suddenly there was a wall of people coming at you, and it was crazy because it was just after that question. <laughs> but to answer, to answer you, it it, it was a. Um, it's purely coincidental, right. that part of it. I actually was not thinking about celebrity at all. It, and it clearly is coming through a lot to a lot of people. The narrative of celebrity is quite biblical in the way we sort of build people up and then tear them down. Sure. Yeah, d d definitely. But I, and, it, and it's a big part of it. And, but, and I think it also because it is Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem and it is big movie stars, there's that meta level that's happening for people. But that wasn't a conscious effort to make a comment about that. I think that's just one way masses react to people that I was sort of talking about it. But, I mean, why they act that way to him, you're going to have to answer for your readers. And I also spoke to Jennifer Lawrence and uh, managed to ask a question in 
basically the most awkward way ever where it feels like I had started to insult her and then I kind of almost turn it around uh, in the middle. So uh, here's Jennifer Lawrence after I make a tit of myself. You're so it feel to go from uh, a movie like this to, let's say, Dark Phoenix. Um, no offence to the X-Men movies, but this film was astonishing and you're so incredible in it. Oh, thank you. Um, I imagine... You know, how does it feel to go from something like this? It's quite nice. What drew you to that, that? To signing on to another one, and um, you know, I felt like my contract was up. I yeah. didn't. I, I didn't have to do exactly. another one. But if I didn't do another one, like what? What would her story be? You know, like what? I, I, I felt like I, I, I owed it to the fans and I owed it to the character to, to not complete her story but but to yeah but uh, follow her journey in a way that you know was fair to the movies and not just be like I don't want to do another X-Men and then uh, I just never show up and everybody's very confused about the mystique they've been watching for three years so yeah if you want to read more about Mother then uh, go ahead to Digital Spy there's loads of articles and and debate um, and a fairly a magnificent piece, not written by me, but um, about how Mother uh, differs from the book on which it's based on. So um, you'll, just, you'll understand more when you when you read the piece. So I'm seeing Mother tomorrow, and while those clips you just heard aren't spoilery, tread carefully at Digital Spy because it's not all spoiler free. Yes, but they flag it up. Yeah, so. they do. They're good about that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, all that's left is for us to give our tweeters. Uh, Dan, what is your tweeter? Uh, 13 finger FX. Uh, that's 13 F I N G E R F for Foxtrot, X for X ray. And what will people get from the effort of clicking on your Twitter? <sighs> One tweet every two days. <laughs> <laughs> and then like a flurry of screenshots from films I'm watching where I think the subtitles are funny. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a strong account. Uh, and I am at. Sam Ashurst, which is S-A-M-A-S-H-U-R-S-T. And uh, follow me for occasional reviews of films I see in advance. Um, I'm hoping to see The Florida Project and Blade Runner 2049 uh, soon. So maybe there'll be reviews of that. Maybe not. They might not let me in. That occasionally happens. Um, Idiots. Absolute idiots. Um, But yes. No, they're not idiots. I'm sorry. I take that back. (laughs) I can say they're idiots. They are idiots. They are idiots. Not necessarily. Except for us. Um, So yeah. um, If they let me in, then I'll review them on Twitter or on this show next time. I'm going to shut up now. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. And uh, we promise we'll be more professional next time. (laughs) We really need to start doing that. Could we? Could we even though? (laughs) Is that possible? Bye-bye. Bye.